Um, for those of you sitting in the back of the lower level, we apologize for the, <laughs> no, we don't want anybody to have a seizure with the lights flickering, so I think the guys took them off. If anybody needs to move to someplace where you can see, feel free to do that, but I apologize for the difficulty we're having with the lights today. Um, so as we move into the summer, it's time for movie season, and all the new movies are coming out, and all the new stories are coming out. And one thing we see happen regularly in movies is one of these uh, great plot devices is that uh, people are trying to find this quest for eternal life, right? However it may be, there's a quest for eternal life. Characters are always running around backstabbing and stealing and conspiring and adventuring to find whatever it is, like an artifact or a potion or a spell or complete some quest that at the end you will have eternal life. I mean, you guys have all seen that movie You've seen it a thousand times, you've read the book, this is a common thing, right? So the question we see then in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, is really no surprise, right? So this guy comes up, this teacher of the law, asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the thing is, though, we, we know this guy isn't expecting Jesus to send him after some artifact or to put him on some quest. That's not... That's not what's going on here. This man is a Jew. And as a Jew, just like many of us Christians, he's, he's wondering not about his own body. Like he's not trying to figure out how to stay in his body for eternity. He's making a question here about heaven. How is it that I could go to heaven and inherit eternal life in heaven? The thing is, as he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus this question, he isn't really interested in Jesus' answer. This guy already has his answer. He's either hoping to trap Jesus and discredit him, or he hopes to confirm what he already believes. Now, I'm sure there are other motivations that might you be able to, to make a case for, but I think one thing that we could agree on is this guy's motivation for this question appears to be insincere. This lawyer comes to Jesus with insincere motivation, asking a question he already has an answer for. The thing is, this lawyer has the wrong answer to his question. Now, he thinks he knows, and here's the thing. He even has the facts right. He even has the facts right. I mean, he is an expert in the law, after all. Okay, But to be right, he would have to interpret those facts correctly. Now, I want you to think back to last week's message and where we were earlier in Luke. We looked at how Jesus rejoiced in the salvation of those who believed. As we moved through the text last week, I tried to show you how much the attention was on those whom Jesus had revealed himself. Right? We talked about Jesus had revealed himself. Let's look again at last week's key passage in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. It says this, And that same hour he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So last week, as we looked at this text, 
we talked about how Jesus revealed himself to those who believed. But what about those who Jesus calls wise and understanding? What about, what about those to whom things are hidden? This is where the parable of the Good Samaritan comes in. Luke presents the lawyer as one who is wise and understanding. All right? He is wise and understanding, but he doesn't even understand what he's saying. Okay? This lawyer literally gives the right answer to his own question. He gets the facts right, but he gets the meaning wrong. In other words, because of his poor motivation, the meaning remains hidden. So what we need to understand is that this man's poor motivations corrupt the right facts. Okay? Because of his poor motivation, it hides the true meaning of the correct facts. So let's go ahead and look at the opening of the parable of the Good Samaritan again. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. And it says this, And behold, a lawyer, or an expert in the law, and by the expert in the law, it means the Old Testament. Okay, so this is, would be a Jewish lawyer. It would be an, uh, an expert in the Old Testament law. All right? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, verse 29 is really important. What's it say? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, one way to teach this parable that would be totally correct is to uh, focus on the lawyer's follow-up question, who is my neighbor? As a matter of fact, I think you have to answer his question, who is his neighbor, if we're going to be faithful to the text. All right, but this passage teaches us more than just who this guy's neighbor is. That's important, that's essential to what's going on here, but it teaches us more than that. This passage teaches us, teaches the believer how to answer spiritual questions. Okay? Hear me. This passage teaches the believer how to answer spiritual questions. And that's where we're going to go today. Now, life in Christ is filled with lots of spiritual questions. How many of you guys have that list of the questions you can't wait to ask Jesus when you get to heaven? Oh man, we've got that list, right? Okay? Because we have these deep-seated spiritual questions. Okay? So life in Christ is filled with those. The, The thing is, how do we go about finding the answer? And how do we know if we are right or not? I think our passage today gives us some pretty valuable insights into those concepts. So today we're going to make a checklist. All right, today we're going to make a checklist. We're going to identify three checks for finding the right answer to our spiritual question. Three checks for finding the right answer to our spiritual question. And then we're going to look at one warning 
That can upend all three checks, okay? All right, so here is your checklist. All right, the answer to your spiritual questions can be found in Scripture. The answer to your spiritual questions can be found in Scripture. Second, the interpretation of those answers belongs to Christ. The interpretation of those answers belong to Christ. Now, third, the application of those answers belongs to Christ. And finally, here's the warning. Attempting to justify yourself will negatively impact your ability to interpret and imply the answers revealed in Scripture. In other words, you're, if you're seeking to justify yourself, it will hide the correct interpretation and application. All right, so let's go ahead. Let's jump into that first check. All right, when you have a spiritual question such as, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What should you do? Where should you go? Who should you ask? Jesus says the answer to our spiritual question is found in Scripture, right? The lawyer asks this question, and Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Where does Jesus direct him? He directs him back to the Bible, in particular, the Old Testament, where this guy is supposed to be an expert. So, he is trained in the ability to find the correct answer to this question. So he quotes two Old Testament passages, and we're going to look at those today. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse uh, 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign to your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall tie them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, you didn't need to be a lawyer to know this passage. Any good Jew who spent any time at synagogue knew this passage. It would have been one that would have been near and dear to them. In fact, the passage itself pretty much insists that you memorize this passage. Okay? Now, in this, we see that, that we are commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Now, this is the greatest commandment. As a matter of fact, the first four of the Ten Commandments are just expressions of this idea of what it means to love the Lord your God. So what do we need to do to be saved? Love God. And, like, really love Him with all your strength, with all your might, right? Okay, but the lawyer continues very wisely, and he quotes from Leviticus 19. Now, this chapter gives a series of commands that deals with how people are to treat each other. And then the Lord gives Moses a passage uh, that kind of summarizes all these commands together. And that we'll, we'll read verses 17 through 18 of, of Leviticus 19. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of 
of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Okay, so what's that mean? Don't hate your brother. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So this lawyer who comes to Jesus, I just want you to understand this. I mean, he hits a home run. He hits that thing out of the park. He nails the answer. He has all the facts. Okay, so the first check is what do we do? If we have a spiritual question, we go to the Scripture. Now, Jesus asks him two questions. What does the law say? How do you read it? How do you read it? This question is really important. What we see here is Jesus placing emphasis on the lawyer's ability to interpret the passage. Jesus isn't just interested in the facts. Now, the facts are essential, but he's not just interested in the facts. Jesus is checking his heart and his motivation. It's not just what you see in the text. You have to interpret it, and you have to apply it correctly. Now, at this point, we see the answer to the first question, right? In a second, we will see that Jesus addresses the lawyer's uh, interpretation. So, after the man gives the facts from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, how does Jesus respond to him? What does Jesus say? He says to him, you have answered correctly. You've got the facts right. Then what does he say? Do this and you will live. We have Jesus here saying, do this. What's that a statement of? That is a statement of application. you got to do it. And you will live. Now, I know some of you are. You see this. You see this as a command. Do this and you will live. And you start going down the rabbit hole of, that sounds like we can earn our salvation by following the law. No, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. That's not what Jesus means, all right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, on these two commands, right? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Saying this is a summary. These two commands are a summary of all the law and the prophets. Jesus is merely showing us that to love like this is to truly believe and trust in the Lord. And that that love and trust will show up in how we love other people. Okay? So, our faith is demonstrated in our love. Alright? That, that is what he's trying to say. So this is a statement of obedience, and this is a statement of faith. Now church, listen up. Okay, you need to hear what happens next. This guy has the facts right. He went to the scripture, and scripture told him what he needed to hear. But then Jesus asks, how do you read it? How do you read it? And then we get it clarified for us in verse 29. What does verse 29 say? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor. And who is my neighbor? And this is the warning. This is the warning that I, I said that contained the whole thing. Okay? Attempting to justify yourself 
will negatively impact your ability to interpret Scripture correctly and apply it appropriately. Your seeking to justify yourself will keep meaning hidden. So think back to what we saw in, in verse 21, right? That, that the wise and understanding things are hidden. Why? This guy here, wise and understanding, he knows the answer. But what's his motivation? His motivation is to justify himself. Okay, this guy knew that if he wanted to follow God the way that the law said, he was going to have to love his neighbor. So, what did he do? Now, he probably knew that loving his neighbor was going to be hard. All right? So, if I've got to do something hard, I should probably do it to the least amount of people as possible, right? So let's, let's begin to justify ourselves. Now, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of this guy, and I'm imagining when he says, and who is my neighbor? Who did he have in mind? Maybe the people that he went to synagogue with? Maybe it was the people he did business with? Maybe it was the people that lived on his street? In my mind, I'm imagining this is 100 people. He's thinking, oh, my neighbor is 100 people. Maybe, maybe he had lots of friends. Maybe it was 200 people. Okay? So he's thinking, this is an environment where I can love my neighbor. And if you think about that in his community, in his synagogue, all right, what do we know? This is going to be a Jewish community, so these are going to be people with similar beliefs. These are going to be people with similar values, similar habits. They're probably going to reciprocate. So what's he say? Who's my neighbor? Isn't it the people that are the easiest to love? The people that are closest to me and easiest to love? So, so what, what is his motivation here? His goal is to reduce what is required of him. What's his motivation? His goal is to reduce what is required of him. Anybody else ever try to do that? I mean, this guy right here, I got two big brothers. They will tell you, that was my childhood. How do I snake myself out of things? How do I get out of stuff so that I don't have to do it? I'm watching Gwen. Gwen is becoming quite crafty at the same skill of reducing what is required of her. That's what we all do, right? But this has a significant spiritual application. It's not just about manipulating your older siblings to do your chores. Now, by changing who he had to love, he wasn't just lowering the requirement of neighborly love. Now, hear me. He was even lowering the expression of what it means to love God. By, by lowering who he has to love, he was lowering the expression of what it means to love God. Now, the book of 1 John was written after the, ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, okay? But God's word is harmonious, so we can know that Jesus had this concept in mind as he addressed the lawyer in Luke 10. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 through 21 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love 
his brother. Guys, this, this lawyer was wise and understanding. Okay? And in his earthly wisdom and in his humanly understanding, he wanted to interpret the law in a way that made it easier for him. If left to this guy, his neighbors would have probably been the two or three people that lived on the end of his street. This guy is saying, I want to love and follow God, but I want to love and follow him my way. All right, so seeking to show his wisdom, he proves himself to be a fool. Now, let's look at the rest of the parable. All right, and this is where we come to the second point of our checklist. The interpretation belongs to Christ. The interpretation belongs to Christ. This guy wanted to justify himself, and Jesus says, nope. Let's look at verse 30 through 37. And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said to him, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You Go and do likewise. Did you, did you catch that last part? We'll come back to that in a minute. You go and do likewise. What did Jesus say to him earlier after he revealed what the Old Testament said about loving God and loving your neighbor? He said, go and do it. So he reiterates it again with his clarification of what it means to obey. All right, so... I want you to think about this parable that Jesus just laid out for us. Now, remember, who's this guy? He's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. So as Jesus is telling this story, who's, who's this man in the story? We have a priest and a Levite, other people who are experts in the law. And what is Jesus revealing to us who is supposed to be wise and understanding according to earthly standards? Well, I would say a lawyer, a priest, and a Levite. Doesn't that sound like a joke? A lawyer, a priest, and a Levite walked, walked into a synagogue, because that's what we'd say as Baptists, right? Okay, so it, it sounds like a joke, but these guys are supposed to be models of understanding. And what are we supposed to see? Because we've read the whole book of Luke, that that though they look wise on the outside, though they look understanding, they have become masters in justifying themselves 
And so what it means to love their neighbor is hidden. And so they go to the other side of the road and pretend that this guy doesn't exist. They don't even feel obligated to act like they love him. They just ignore him. Pretend he's not even there. Church, what we need to see is that Scripture has the answer and Jesus has the interpretation. Scripture has the answer and Jesus has the interpretation. Who's your neighbor? Everyone. Who's your neighbor? Everybody. Okay, even even the most unlikely of person. The real neighbor, the one who actually loved, is the cultural enemy and an abomination to a good Jew. All right? This, we, we think, we think that we're so different, that we are separated ourselves from these, these people of ancient days. Okay? We don't do that. We know everyone's our neighbor, so we are good at controlling the interpretation of Scripture, right? We never justify ourselves. But I want you to think about some of the tough questions that our culture asks, and that because our culture asks them, we as Christians are forced to wrestle with the answers. We also have to go to Scripture and look for the answers. And then we have to look to Scripture to see how Scripture interprets these answers. So I just want you to think about what are some of those questions that we see in our culture on the regular. Just think about this for a minute. I'm going to go through a list, okay? Should, should I divorce my husband? Is my boss asking me to do something unethical? Is it wrong to have an abortion? Is homosexuality a sin? Is transgenderism a sin? Church, you guys know the spiritual questions you have. We know that the Bible has answers to these questions. Okay, but just like this lawyer wanted to interpret the answer in the way that made life easier, we have to let Jesus control the interpretation of Scripture, not ourselves. Because what we will do is seek to justify our own opinions. So, in, in many instances, we see Jesus address our tough questions. Praise God, like in this case, sometimes he tackles these things head on. And it's so good when he does. I love it. Sometimes the answers aren't as direct. Sometimes the answers are a little cloudy, a little more indirect, okay? I'm not saying it's always easy to see Jesus' interpretation. But what I am saying is that we have to check our motivation for our interpretation, okay? Hear me. Jesus is usually going to call us to a standard that makes us more dependent on him. Jesus is usually going to call us to a standard that makes us more dependent on him. He says that following him requires that we die to our desires, that we take up our cross and follow him. 
That means that following him is hard. Following him is hard. He's not going to let us justify ourselves because he wants us to be dependent on him. And when we justify ourselves, we seek to make ourselves independent from him. We want to be a law unto ourselves. We want to make ourselves our own authority and our own God. We want, maybe, because we're good Christians, we want to have a biblical grounded answer. So we will go to Scripture and we will find some biblical precedent, but then our own justification, we will twist it to suit ourselves and our needs. But it is us who should be bent and broken over Scripture, not Scripture bent and twisted over us and our desires. When we see this idea of loving our neighbors as ourself, we have an escape clause. Yes! It's all in how I define neighbor. I can get away with it. Uh, you know what? That guy's not my neighbor, so I don't have to love him. Right? But Jesus does not let us off that easy. He says, I control the interpretation. Yes, you have found correctly. But yes, even that guy you don't want to love, you have to love if you say you love me. All right, now, finally, let's look at the last check. The third check against uh, uh, our questions is this. The application of those answers that we find belong to Christ. The application of those answers belong to Christ. So Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Okay, the application is that this lawyer was commanded by Jesus to love the way the Samaritan man did. Jesus provided the correct interpretation of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself and the correct application. Go and do it. Now, hear me. We don't get to hear the true application from Jesus and then dismiss it and do whatever we want. Okay? It says it. We know how to apply it. We, we know what it means. Now we have to apply it. We have to actually do it. I mean, you guys have experienced this. I, I, as a parent, I've experienced this. I know you all have. As a, as a boss, never with anybody I work with. Uh, but you, you sometimes make it clear what needs to be done, right? You, you know what needs to be done, okay? But sometimes the person who's receiving this message just says, nope, not doing it. Just yesterday, we had a parenting moment with shoes. Oh, man. This is what needs to be done. Face smushing. Put them away. And there they were. She had the word. She had the interpretation. She jettisoned the application. Right? In the same way, we cannot do that with the Lord. He makes it plain in his word. He gives us the interpretation of what we're supposed to do with it. He even tells us how to apply it. And so we have to do it. We cannot merely dismiss it. He does not allow us that kind of disconnect. I want you to think about this, this framework that we've established. Do you guys see how awesome 
this is when it all works together? Now, just think about this for a second. When, when we make truth relative, when we make his command subject to our interpretation, or if we make the application of this interpretation optional, then, then we declare ourselves to be the authority. We make ourselves a God. When we let Scripture define the truth, when we rely on Jesus' interpretation and application, then it takes the pressure off of us. I don't have... I don't have to worry about this because I know the answer. It's not your job to determine and interpret and apply morality because the Lord already did. You can't handle that kind of responsibility. You will mess it up. If that kind of responsibility is placed on you, you will seek to justify yourself. You will come up with some way, somehow, to say this thing that I did was okay when you know for sure that the Lord does not allow for this. So you see this standard of him giving us what's right and wrong in his word, him interpreting it, him telling us how to apply it, takes a burden off of our shoulder. That's why he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is peace and safety and comfort within the boundaries and guidelines that the Father has set up for us. That is where we thrive, where we flourish, is within his, his, uh, his guidance within the framework that he's established for us. It's within that framework that we have freedom and we have happiness. You cannot handle being wild on the frontier on your own. You will not make it. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But there is protection inside his boundaries. So God in his infinite wisdom gives us the truth tells us what it means, and tells us what to do with it. Some people will tell us, man, you Christians are brainwashed. You just, you don't even think for yourself. Man, I sure hope that's true. <laughs> like this thing that's meant as an insult, we should wear as a badge of honor, saying that, yes, we are submitted to God, submitted to what he teaches us, because there we have hope, there we have freedom. And there it is good. It's better. This is why Jesus says in the upper room the night before he died, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Because it's better to obey. Do you believe that, church? It's better to obey. Listen, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and its way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Whew. Following Jesus is often hard. Since only a few find it, it is often lonely. But where does each path lead? The easy path leads to destruction. The narrow and hard path leads to life. The story of the Good Samaritan is so important. 
not just because it calls us to a higher standard of love, but because it reveals the course of action for how we get our spiritual questions answered. First, we have to go to the Bible for our answers. Then we look to Jesus and other scriptures to help us interpret what we find. And third, we look to Jesus and other scriptures for application. Chances are, as we look at scripture, he's even told us how to do what he's called us to do. But finally, we have to be so, so careful because our hearts and minds are tricky. We have to make sure that our conclusions and our answers are not set up to justify ourselves. Man, that is a tricky and dangerous game to play. So as the praise team comes and leads us into a time of reflection, here's what I'd like you to do. So as we sing these last two songs, it's a chance for us to pause and process what we've heard. It's a chance for us to reflect, okay? I want you to ask yourselves, how have you been seeking answers to your tough spiritual questions? Did you first look to Scripture? Did you first look to Scripture? Then, how did you seek to interpret what you found? Was your motivation rooted in self-justification? Did you ask others for help? Or did you only listen to those who reinforced your position that you were trying to justify? The third question I want you to ask is, did you apply what you found the way that Jesus wanted you to? Or did you just dismiss the truth and decide to do it your own way? So what I want you to do is I just want to invite you to ask these questions again. But, but I also want you to confess your self-interest to Jesus. I want you to, to seek him to find your answers. Fully understanding that Jesus has told us to take up our cross and follow him. He may very well be calling you to do something that is very, very hard. Or if you're here today and you know that you've been following your own way for so long and that it hasn't worked out the way that you hoped, and you decide you're ready to follow a new way, then we would love to talk with you about what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus. So the altar is open as we sing. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to, to worship you. We thank you that your word is sufficient and that you have provided us answers. Father, I pray that we would seek them, that we would see that you are for us and not against us, that you are for our good. Lord, help us to trust that, to believe that as we seek to follow and obey you. Lord, I pray for those who are here who have been justifying themselves. Lord, I pray that your conviction would be uh, strong. Lord, that you would break them free of their stronghold, that they would turn to you and seek to find what you have for them. It's in your name we pray.